fans and welcome to talk more talk a solo beatles video cast this is a bi-weekly show in which we talk about for the most part the solo careers of the beatles without a doubt the most successful solo careers of any artist coming from a previous band i'm ken michaels i'm one of the four regular co-hosts of this show known for my syndicated beatles radio program called every little thing also for our another talk show podcast called things we said today Hopefully you know me for those shows as well. And I'm being joined by my esteemed colleagues here on the show. First of all, we have uh, the queen of Beatles media, who has uh, written, yes, we can bow in front of her. I thought you were going to have your hat. I know, I know. I forgot the hat. I was all prepared to call you the mini pearl in the the Beatles world. But... uh, we, of course, know Kit for all of our work with Beatle Fan, uh, the book Songs Who Are Singing, Guided Tours to the Beatles' Lesser Works, Michael Jackson FAQ, and we welcome Kit O'Toole to the show. Hi, Kit. Hello, Ken. Hello, guys. And hello, everybody watching or listening out there. Mm. Also, we have one of the deans at Monmouth University who has written a number of books on the Beatles, including the Beatles Encyclopedia, and two books on George Martin, which I think Tom is ready to show to everybody, I think. Uh-huh. Sound Pictures, which is the most recent. And there's also the first one called Maximum Volume. You have mm. that one there, Tom? No. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it's but a, actually, the second volume is so heavy. I can't, uh, I mean, this is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Two would be too much. Actually, uh, our topic on the show revolves around George Martin, and who better to ask than the author of those two books on George Martin. Hello, Ken. How are you doing? Hey, everybody. It's good to see you tonight. (laughs) And also we have Tom Hunyadi, who you know for the McCartney, solo McCartney podcast called Two Legs, that he co-hosts with David Gargolino. Hello, Tom. How are you? Hello, Ken. Hello, Ken. And Queen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I greet all my subjects. I am not worthy. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to have a special service at the very beginning to bow down. <laughs> I think. Right. <laughs> so on the show tonight, we figured that, hey, We've had Ken Womack here since the very beginning. This is our 20th show. He's written these two books on George Martin. We haven't talked to him about his work on George Martin. And in specific, uh, specifically, we'll be talking about um, George Martin's work with the solo Beatles. Of course, we can throw in anything on the Beatles as a group as well, and maybe some of the other artists that George Martin produced. And we'll get to that in just a moment. We do have Tom to give us his own review of seeing Paul McCartney live 
which we will do in just a few moments. And we'll briefly talk about the film yesterday, which we're probably going to go in more detail on our next show. But first, we'll start with the latest in Beatle news. And actually, it's not nearly as much as what we've had in the past. But here's what I got for you. First of all, Paul McCartney's show on June 28th at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas included a special guest that he brought on stage, that being Steven Tyler. And the two of them did Helter Skelter together, which you can now watch on YouTube. Um, Paul has just made available online a new remix for his song, Nothing for Free, which is produced by Chris Holmes. And I know that we posted it on our Facebook page, I believe. Yes. Have you guys heard it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I have. Um, I don't think it offers anything special. I think it's one thing I would have left alone. I thought that song was brilliant enough. I mean, I don't know if it needed to be, you know, toyed around with, but, you know, it's not, doesn't surprise me that there's a remix of that song out. So this as long as we don't get the remix version of Egypt Station, I'm, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I kind of I, agree with you, Kit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree too. I I think it it um I mean it just <laughs> there isn't that much difference to it. I mean it's kind of it's just like kind of a stronger beat and and I like some of the remixes that Paul has had different DJs do. I mean some of them have been very creative and and a lot of fun. But yeah, this one and and I know Chris Holmes of course has worked with him for over many years he does all the the mixing at you know like a half an hour before the show starts they play this you know mix of yeah. all these different hits and, and it's a lot of fun i mean i enjoy listening to those but yeah this one i i just thought yeah i, I was expecting a little more and and as you said tom i i think it didn't really need it anyway it's a it's such a great song on its own mm. yeah ken have you heard it i have not um but you know i defer to the queen <laughs> well, you'll have to hear it. I mean, see what you think. As, as I said, I just personally didn't think it added that much to the yeah. to an already strong track. The only difference that I heard was that it sounded like it was sped up. It was a mm -hmm. little bit faster than the original version. And that is one of my favorite songs from yeah. the Egypt Station session, which uh, originally was a bonus track on the Target version and then on the Explorers edition and Travelers edition. Really good song that he wrote with Ryan Tedder. Um, the film yesterday, which we'll talk about very briefly, um, did well at the box office, coming in as the number three movie over the weekend, bringing in $17 million behind Toy Story 4 and Annabelle Comes Home. Also, Ringo Starr will continue his annual Peace and Love birthday celebration this year, which he's been doing every year now since 2008, returning to the Capitol Records Tower in L.A. on his birthday, July the 7th. Ringo will be joined with a star-studded cast of classic rockers and other celebrities. Those expected to attend will be Edgar Winter, Ben Montench, Sheila E., Nils Lofgren, T-Bone Burnett, Jim Keltner, uh, Greg Bissonette, David Lynch, Ed Begley Jr., Richard Lewis, and of course, wife Barbara Bach. Uh, there'll be a photo op at 10.45 in the morning and performances of Ringo songs at 11. At 12 noon, Ringo will do what he's been doing, like I said, since 2008, saying the words peace and love, hoping everyone around the world will say it along with him. And uh, he has said if we all say it or think it together, perhaps we'll all achieve it. 
Okay. Why not? Um, Yoko Ono was among the celebrities showing their support for NYC Pride Week. A photo of her with her arms outstretched on the streets of New York has been shown online with Yoko's message. Happy World Pride, New York City. Uh, this is our world, and it's beautiful. I want to survive together. I see rainbows. I see tomorrow. I see us sending rainbow. Rainbow love. Love, Yoko. So, as always, ring, uh, Yoko involved. And I give her a lot of credit because, you know, it's it's a bit of a push for her to do some of these things now. I mean, she's, you know, a bit older now and, and uh, you know, but, but she still does it. I mean, she's still out there showing that, you know, how that she's still relevant, that, that she still cares about these issues. And I'm, I give her a lot of credit. Absolutely. 86 years old and she's still out there making her presence known. Um, also, Jeff Lynn kicked off his North American tour. This is back on June the 20th with a concert of 20 songs with ELO. That has been the repertoire. And uh, eight songs in, he welcomed the opening act, Danny Harrison, who sang the Traveling Wilbury's favorite, Handle With Care, with Jeff. And Danny sang George's part in the song. And if you've seen this online, and I think there have been a few videos of this, I just get chills. You know, mm. and he's singing George's part. And also, in case you haven't heard about this, uh, not only is Danny the opening act, but he has posted online a one-hour performance of him and his band called In Paralive with songs from his album In Parallel. So if you can't make it to the concert with Jeff Lynn and Danny, well, you can observe Danny performing with his band in this video. Also, if you're a fan of the band Yes!, uh, they have been touring with Asia, also John Lodge and Carl Palmer. As part of their encores, they've been doing John Lennon's song, Imagine. But what makes this special, as many fans know, Alan White, the drummer of Yes, played on the song Imagine and on the Imagine sessions. So they actually have a video from Imagine being shown behind the band as they're playing this, and it looks like it's part of um, Above Us Only Sky. So you see the band playing and you see an early Alan White while Alan White is performing with Yes Now, as well as John and, um, and George Harrison's in it and Klaus Foreman. So it's really cool that this is one of their encores and they're presenting it this way. Nice. And um, finally, there's a brand new four-part magazine on the history of the Beatles. It's called The Beatle Years, being released. The first volume just came out. And the front cover reads, From Skiffle Boom to the Birth of Beatlemania, How Four Musicians Forged a Sound That Was As Innovative As It Was Inspirational. The series celebrates the life, legacy, and music of the Fab Four. And this first issue has 134 pages. The second volume will be coming out in December for those of you that collect that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else you guys might have to add that you might know about as far as what's going on news-wise? Not that I can think of. Ken, what do you, that, you know? That, that, was, that was pretty thorough there, Ken Michaels. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Um, have we lost Tom? Because I don't. See yeah, him he popped up. Yeah, uh, Tom's going to be doing this a bit this uh, tonight. He's apparently the whole Arizona, like I don't know if it's Phoenix area, and I've been having a lot of internet problems. So he's going to be uh, kind of popping in and out during uh, during the uh, evening as a connection uh, stuff. So that oh, I think he's coming back. Hang on just a second. All right, I think he's back. All right, let's welcome back the man. Tom, he's back. Okay, there <laughs> he is. Welcome I knew this back. was going to happen. Thanks. Yeah, we said that. Yeah, we uh, said yeah. technical difficulties. <sighs> Anyways, my dreams were my ticket out. <laughs> <laughs> but you're back just in time. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, so sorry your about timing, that. Your timing couldn't be perfect. Awesome. It's now time for you to talk about this <laughs> concert that you attended Great. with Mr. McCartney. What'd you think? Great. Another magical night. Um, this was probably my favorite of the three times that I've seen him. Um, you know, we we criticize him from time to time from his for his set list and his voice, but you know, as soon as that show starts, I mean, all that stuff just goes out the window for me. Um, hmm. You know, it's just uh, no matter how many times you know we hear the same songs, it, you know, it just doesn't matter. As soon as that show starts. You know, everybody's having fun, and that fun is contagious, and it's just a really good time. And um, and he actually was in pretty fine voice uh, for this performance, but I gotta say, you know, the the band does do a good job with kind of hiding the vocal, you know, his vocals a little bit with their with their backing vocals. So, um, but all in all, it was great. But I gotta tell you, three three words: horns, horns, and horns. It was um, just <laughs> you know the magical part of the show. And it really made it. It really made the show pop, and I'm really glad that he brought the horns back. And it's unfortunate that you guys probably on the East Coast won't get to see it because I don't think he's gonna do any shows on the East Coast uh, for this tour because it's almost over with. But um, hmm. oh, really? So maybe. Well, yeah, it's almost over. I mean, last show's in uh, Los Angeles here in a couple of days, I think, and oh, and then that's it. Yeah. So I mean, he didn't schedule any New York shows or anything like that, or New Jersey. Not at all. Yeah. So who knows if this is gonna be it for for the year? Um, because the, you know, the tickets for my show went on sale last September. So they were, you know, 10 months before the concert. So if he was to do shows at the rest of this year, I mean, he probably would have already, or they probably would have announced it already, but, right. um, yep. Yeah. Yep. he's freezing. Oh, it's, he's freezing. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm glad he got that part out about the horns. before. Yeah. <laughs> it's sounding like the horns are there. Yeah. I think so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's absolutely right. Though the the horns were were just phenomenal. I mean, I I hope he keeps that for for you know tours the the you know, however many tours he's going to be doing. That was such an addition. Oh, I think Tom. Okay, Tom, you're moving again. All right. Okay. All right. Good. But anyways, but the you know the set list. You know, he did change up a couple songs. I thought the the three songs from Egypt Station played really well. Um, you know, especially for you, I thought was amazing. And then who cares was worked really well live too. I love it when, you know, Rusty, uh, did the feedback up against the speaker. That was really cool at, for the beginning of who cares. And, um, and, you know, again, you know, the horns for come on to me worked, were, were, were awesome. Um, you know, when, uh, he does let me roll it, I think, which was the third or fourth song, the horns were in the, um, I think a stage, right. They were in the crowd up on the upper deck, so they were kind of, you know, you know, in in working in with the crowd. That was pretty cool. And then, um, you know, Junior's Farm, one of my top five favorite 
you know, Paul songs, and it was great to see him do that live. I had never seen him do that live. And the same with uh, Let Him In. He never did Let Him In on the two other shows that I saw him. So that was really cool. And then speaking of Wings, it's really funny because then when he got to uh, 1985, that's when he goes, this is for the Wings fans. And I thought he did all these other great Wings songs. And, he, <laughs> you know, when you guys were a trio to uh, to say, you know, this is for the Wings fans. It was really you know, just just odd. But um, uh, if our buddy Don is here, Don Maley, who uh, is a fan of this show in Two Legs, and he flew down from Portland, Oregon to uh, to hang out and watch the show uh, down here in Phoenix. So it was cool hanging out with him and getting to meet him finally. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, again, you know, um, three-hour show. Uh, you know what? The horns, I'll tell you what, Golden Slumbers with the horns, mm. magnificent. Yep. Just that was another, another glorious highlight of the night was that, um, you know, all the pyro from, you know, Live and Let Die was great. Um, and Kit, yes, Valentine again. <laughs> I was just about to ask you, what's the beer run song? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's sad because I mean, it's a nice song, but it's just like you know, I don't know if you know people want that upbeat stuff, and I think that's when everybody was the happiest. Um, from the show, um, couple next to me it was a big family from uh Denver, first time seeing Paul live, so that was kind of cool seeing their faces and watching them enjoy. The show as well so it was really uh just a special night and um i, I really hope he comes back but i also hope that it slows down the touring a little bit <laughs> so, yeah you know yeah. In, in recent years for me part of the joy in seeing paul or ringo live is seeing people that have seen or seeing them for the first time and seeing their reaction so you know when people are shocked when there's explosions during live and let die He's been doing this now <laughs> since, uh, you know, 1975. Yeah. Yeah. Exposures, um, you, like they don't know this, but that was a fun comment a second ago from Bernardo about the show in Dallas. I was at that one too. And, uh, and there were no horns in 1990, of course, on, uh, on that tour and the flowers in the dirt tour. Um, and I remember thinking, especially about golden slumbers and carry that weight how it was missing, you know, the power of that orchestration. Or got to get you into my wife or, you know, there were so many that, yeah, yeah. that I just Letting thought, oh, come on, yeah, bring back more. Because, you yeah. know, seeing Rock Show, I mean, the horns on, on that tour were just phenomenal. He must have saved up his money then to be able yeah, to do this for us. Well <laughs> it costs a lot. It costs a lot. It's very nice, though, that, you know, it took a few years, but he managed to save up the dollars for it. Maybe it was maybe it was Egypt Station being number one that helped us go back to that place. That's really awesome. And if, we, if we bring it back to number one, maybe he'll take an orchestra with him. That would be or a half orchestra, probably, at this point. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> How did the crowd react to the, the new songs, Tom? Oh, yeah. Fa Yu, I thought, was was terrific. He did a really cool thing at before Fa Yu where he just goes, hey, look, we know what songs you want to hear because whenever he does, like, a, you know, a Beatles song or a popular wing songs, all the phones light up. And he goes, whenever he does a, uh, a new song, it turns in, the, the audience turns into a black hole. <laughs> you know? He goes, well, yes. we don't care. We're going to do them anyways. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, he... The, the, the did Fayu or the crowd went crazy. They did the uh, the video um, for Fayu in the background, which I thought was great because I love that video and that's the video that 
um, that's what really made me really lo love that song uh, was that video. But um, that was great. And uh, like I said, who cares? You know, he did a nice little, you know, intro. What he normally does is just says, you know, that the song is for, you know, you know, there's a lot of bowling out there, especially internet bowling. So these are for the people that feel bullied. And there was a person holding a sign over here that says, you know, I'm 17 years old, but I get bullied because I'm an old soul. <laughs> you know, and he had a you know, Sergeant Pepper outfit on, you know, and so Paul yeah. pointed him out in the, in the crowd. So that was kind of cool. Oh, and, that's nice. Yeah. And, you know, no matter, I just love the arrangement of something. I love that arrangement. I don't care how many times I see it. I still get a little, little emotional. And then saying, yeah, here today, that never grows it's hard old. to not mm. get emotional when, when you hear him do those two songs. And, um, and, with, you know, he knocked it out I'm of the park with, again. You know, I'm with opinion. Joni. I thought just, these songs worked. These, oh, I'm sorry. I thought these new songs worked better live than the, the the songs from new that he played. But that's just my opinion. Maybe just because I like these songs a little bit better than the songs from new. But um, uh, great time, great time. Yeah, yeah I, was able to I love the fact that he has it abandoned, Queenie Eye. You know, yeah. that it's nice. I wish he'd abandon it. I'm with Joni and put in silly love songs. I miss it. I agree. Um, yeah. And Womack be... went, went blank on my screen, so I, I can't hear him or see him. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. You can you can uh, pop in and out if you need to. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm with Joni. Silly love songs would be a great addition, especially with that Chris porn section. I mean, that's what makes it so fabulous. Right, I'm going to pop out one time, Kit, and okay, come back. Sure. back. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I mean, that was one of the highlights. So uh, mm. one thing I always remember from Rock Show is the of silly love songs and, and, you know, the horn section. I mean, that was that was really, uh, you know, a highlight. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I wish he'd bring that back, too. Right. Yeah. And I'm so glad that he's doing Letting Go, which I mention yeah. every now and then. And Junior's Farm, which he started doing in the last few years. Always one of my favorite singles from his yep. post Beatles career. Great rocker should write, should be right up there at the beginning of the, of the show. And he so, didn't do it at the show. <laughs> he uh, didn't do it. He did save us. Yeah, he did. That's, that's right. I yeah. love that song too. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, but it's always a thrill to see Paul and it, you know, the whole experience of taking it all in a man who's given us all this great music and you know, He's got such a catalog that is so rich and just watching the reaction of people around around you, that yeah. is part of the experience for me. Like yeah. I said, seeing people who are, who are going to see Paul for the first time, which happens every time I see Paul. You think it might be the same people that I meet all the time. There's always people who have never seen him live. And for that reason, I'm just so grateful he still keeps doing this. Same with Ringo. Yeah. So and I got Ringo in two months myself. So actually two months to the day from the Paul show. So August right. 26th. All I got right. Ringo for two shows like a week before that. So awesome. Yeah. All right. So before we talk about George Martin, uh, we just want to briefly mention the movie yesterday, which all of us have seen except Kit. Mm -hmm. But we were thinking that, you know, every time you see a review now online, it's like there, there's um, there's no spoilers here. We don't want to give the whole movie away. There is a, a big twist right before the end of the movie, near the end of the movie. We don't want to talk about that. Please don't post anything about that. But I can just say that I really enjoyed seeing this movie. I think some people are super critical. <laughs> when I look online, if you just relax and enjoy it for the entertainment value alone, 
I love the whole story storyline behind it, but uh, I would definitely recommend seeing it. And we are going to talk about this at length in our next show to give you guys a chance to see it, because I know many of you have still not seen it. And uh, we figure in a few weeks by then, if you haven't seen it, you probably won't be going anyway. So right, yeah, three three weekends should be plenty enough time for you guys to see it. So we'll start talking about it a little more freely on the next show. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things I want to bring up because uh, mm -hmm. it's one of the few movies on on the Beatles that's not a documentary that I would actually go and see more than once. Mm -hmm. It's really wow. enjoyable, you know, mm -hmm. to that degree. Anyway, as I said, we're going to be talking about George Martin here because we do have the professor, Ken Womack, with us who has <laughs> written a couple of books <laughs> on George Martin, the most recent of which covers uh, from 1967 through the end of George's career. And since we are a solo Beatles video cast, most of what we'll talk about will be George Martin's work with the solo Beatles. Um, but I would like to bring up to start the Beatle breakup itself. Because even though George Martin did work before the Beatles and even other acts while he was producing the Beatles, it still must have been, you know, in 1970, a big shock for all this to happen. And I wanted to know, based on your research, Ken, was this a very sad time for him or was it a very liberating time for him? Because I, I have to imagine being the producer for the Beatles had enormous pressure to it, so many expectations, so much in record sales. Was there some relief at the time or was it a combination of both that and sadness? Well, you know, Ken, it was it was all those things, really. He was relieved because he had really grown tired of watching them nitpick and picnic on each other in the studios, and he found that to be very depressing. Hmm. Um, and the fact that they were able to pull off Abbey Road was, to him, uh, a great source of consolation uh, and, and solace. But he was relieved, and... Um, uh, I, I think he probably had a little bit of PTSD, although we didn't call it that in 1970. Um, not for a long time, in fact, but he he was in a kind of shell-shocked way. Um, I think the reason why he doesn't feel it acutely, though, is because in 1970, he is trying desperately to pull together the dollars to create Air London, which was Air Oxford Street at the time. And uh, it was an enormous and very expensive undertaking uh, to build and outfit a studio that he did not own, was renting uh, at Piccadilly Circus uh, in the vicinity of the tube station there. And uh, it was a lot of pressure. But of course, um, for the solo years, and I include him in the solo years in a way because he was so integral, um, and during the initial solo years, he was really working hard to make a buck. Uh, you know, he had that terrible deal um, that EMI had left him with as his, uh, um, his how, how do we call it, um, his dismissal clause, uh, or rather his, uh, his ability to exercise himself out of EMI. Was that the Did one he signed in 1965? That's right. And, uh, and it really, it, it had taken a toll because the percentages were so low. 
Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it would haunt him, of course, yeah. with, <laughs> with his first top five single in 1973. Yeah, that's common. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he was so he was really hustling trying to make that work. And uh, where I was going before, you know, besides the exit contract, studios would really become his hits uh, in his post Beatle years. I mean, he made by far the most money out of operating the three studios that, that he built. Oh, very good. Um, how much research did you, did you do in finding out as much as you can about the sentimental journey sessions? There isn't that much that I know about it other than the fact that George Martin was at the helm and a very interesting aspect of that album is the fact that every single song has a different arranger to it. <laughs> did he enjoy that experience? Or was he limited because every song except one that was his own uh, arrangement uh, had someone else doing the arrangements? What was that whole experience like for him? Um, I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of new things to say about that. Um, and, but I will say this, um, and I talk about this in the book, you know, the problem with Sentimental Journey, and George did this more than once in his post-Beatles years, and I guess arguably during the Beatles years too, but especially when he was dealing with artists with whom he may not have been familiar in the same way. And in this case, I'm referring to the arrangers, right? Hmm. He really set up a kind of classically problematic situation um, where he made it, uh, I would argue, much more difficult than it needed to be, right? He was perfectly capable of arranging the songs. What he was doing was building his own kind of thought experiment on how they could approach these old standards um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know when you look at it in uh, in retrospect you know George had a good time making it but like Ringo he wasn't thrilled with the outcome um, and I wonder if they were ready to do that really at this point mm -hmm. um, it seemed like a lark in a way um, you know he was eager to stay in business even at the paltry percentage he suddenly discovered he was getting for working with Ringo. Um, you know, he thought that he would be treated like a solo artist. Of course, uh, Lynn Wood at EMI was quick to say, oh, no, George, um, you're working <laughs> under the same crummy deal we gave you with your exit agreement in 1965. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, in that moment in post Beatledom, they, they did turn over a lot of units with that record. Yeah. yeah. Um, did Ringo pick the songs or was that all George Martin or the arrangers or it's, it's a combination. He, you know, he, what did he used to say? I tried to pick songs my mom would like, Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I, I, I would leave it there. I mean, George picked some of them. Um, George certainly picked the arrangers, mm. you know, and he was imagining this kind of magnificent collaboration, right? Um, and you can see that all over his career where he imagines these different kinds of scenarios where he brings people together. Okay. So we're going to bounce around. I have a load of other questions, but why don't we have uh, Kit ask the next one? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I, I'm going to turn it to just a reader, a reviewer question here. Let me put it on uh, the screen here from uh, Dennis Dickinson. Um, did, uh, and I'm assuming it's did George Martin wonder why Paul didn't work with, with him? I'm assuming he means, you know, before Live and Let Die, of course. Why didn't he initially work with him when he was doing his first solo album and, and Wings? Wow. You know, I have, uh, I don't think he did, actually. 
Um, he had plenty of work. You know, people were lining up to work with him. He spent most of his time trying to turn the Air Oxford Street location into a successful business and does after a few years. The problem was he took an enormous debt load to outfit the studio with really contemporary uh, high quality gear. And that would be the hallmark that he would follow up in Montserrat and later again uh, when he built his second studio in London um, after Oxford Street's rent lapsed. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he was enormously busy. He had a lot of folks he was working with, several that he'd been waiting to work with for years. And uh, I don't know that he necessarily missed that. Um, uh, I mean, what we do know now, of course, uh, even though George really never discussed this until much later, was that he was orchestrating Ram. Yeah. Um, so he was involved in that project. I don't think he felt slighted necessarily. I do know he was bothered by being called out by John Lennon in 1972 and beyond, um, you know, for working with, we, let's call them lesser known acts like Stackridge <laughs> and others. Um, you know, when you look at that period, George is working with one different act after another. And uh, when you listen to that, those records, uh, as I have sequentially, it creates a very interesting experience. There is a lot of commonality between, you know, all of those those different acts he's working with. He's getting a lot of great new sounds, um, but I think he's looking for the next big thing. You know, if you go back, uh, you know, many years, uh, really before the Beatles, he's just repeating the behavior that he exhibited in the 1950s when he was looking for that, uh, that fireproof act, right? That first rock act or that first skiffle act. He's just trying it all. He's sampling hmm. uh, to see if he can find, you know, a big winner. So I don't know that he, he felt slighted about Paul at all. I think he was just looking for the big one. Well, and actually, that perfectly leads to to a question I was going to ask you, Ken, which is I, one of my, I think, the most fascinating aspects of um, sound pictures is George's journey of, of okay, how do you how do you follow the Beatles? You know, how do you follow with that? And <laughs> talking, I mean, that's hard act to follow. And talking about his work with uh, it was the comeback, what would become comeback album of Tommy Steele, and how. Uh, that that didn't work at all, and I love this this uh, sentence you have here. It says, "With Steele and clients before him, like Judy Garland and Ella Fitzgerald, the producer had come to learn that late career encounters were just that glowing opportunities, and sometimes desperate efforts to recapture the contemporary musical consciousness, and more often than not, old glories." Uh, yeah. I thought that was. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I mean that's that's telling it like it is. So so how you know how do you feel like how did George get out of that? You know how did he find himself again? You know get, relaunches his career after going through this you know this phase of trying to figure out where he fit in the in that well, landscape. He, I mean, if you look at it, he never stops doing that. I don't know that he actually learns from his own behavior. The first thing he did uh, in those uh, when he became you know head of air was to go to New York to go to songwriting you know uh, to go to places like the Brill Building to try to find songwriters. That's what you did in 1958 and 62. Wow. Yep. You know, so George was iterating old behaviors for a business that he and his band, the Beatles, had changed. There's a deep <laughs> irony in that, you know, if you think about it. 
um, in the fact that he was really using the wrong behaviors after he and the Beatles blow up the industry. It was very, it was very strange. Um, you know, and Jeff Kendall up there mentions uh, George Martin's work with America. I, I would argue that working with Jeff Beck and America were examples of him being able to take acts who I wouldn't call them retreads by any stretch, but you know, Jeff had not seen glory for a bit and America after an explosive beginning when they just dominated the charts had kind of nosedived. Right. Um, so those are great examples of George actually following his old instincts and the old pre Beatles model, but succeeding pretty successfully America. Um, and, and I, I think other critics from this period would agree was his greatest post Beatles success in a lot of ways. He took this band and he got a lot of pleasure out of taking them back from, you know, this scrap heap that they'd suddenly found them on and turned them back into a successful band with sister golden hair. Yeah. Um, and you know, all those great songs. He even when uh, this is a, one of my favorite tales about George, you know, when they do that beautiful, America's Greatest Hits, which was the soundtrack for any of us who remember that part of the 70s, right? right. Um, even as young as we were, um, that, that beautiful uh, album cover, the one with the, the almost the cartoonish drawing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, George went back and remixed <laughs> all of their early hits like Ventura Highway that he had not originally produced. Um, and I think in his own way, that was his method for sort of making them his own, right? Um, he just couldn't let them be like they were. He had to put a little bit of the Martin stamp on it um, to have some ownership there. And they had a blast working with each other. They recorded in Hawaii, um, you know, in resorts. They were everywhere uh, having a lot of fun together until they got to the point where really nothing was happening anymore with America. I would argue though, that had nothing to do with George and really the quality of the material. You know, they were not Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> um, no, they just weren't. They weren't churning out that kind of material and certainly not with that kind of longevity. Uh, and they eventually part ways, but what a, what a resuscitation effort George pulls off with those guys. Yeah. It's and, also kind of ironic that some of those songs with America sound very Beatlesque. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Mr. Golden Hair is like straight out of the George Harrison <laughs> songbook. It starts off kind of like My Sweet Lord in a way. And yeah. uh, and Daisy Jane is so McCartney-esque. My God. That's it's a gorgeous tune. I can easily hear Paul singing that. Yeah. Absolutely. And maybe even more importantly, lonely people, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> Just don't look at them. Yep. <laughs> it's interesting you brought up Ram because I think George put a big stamp on Ram because he did the orchestral arrangements for Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey and also Backseat of My Car. And that's and beautiful that, stuff. Yeah. A lot of people point to Ram as sounding very Beatlesque. Not just because it's Paul, but I guess George Martin had a lot to do with it. And it's also kind of ironic. I don't know if I mentioned this when Red Rose Speedway came out, the box set. But only then did I even see, it, it has it in the notes there, that Little Lamb Dragonfly, it says George Martin Orchestral Arrangement. So it's from the Ram Sessions, so it makes sense. Sure does. Yeah. yeah. All right, Tom. All right. 
All right. Well, you know, one of the things I love on two legs is talking with authors, and I love talking. I'm love talking with you right now. But I, I'm I'm a big fan of getting into why somebody's doing a book, a project like this. Um, you know, he's he's done his own memoir. I mean, you've got the you know the produced by George documentary. How much of that did you take? with you? I mean, how much was there any like grain of salt with that? Because, you know, you said you he was looking for the next big thing. But if you watch produced by George, which I just did earlier today, you said he wasn't really looking for hits, he was just more or less looking for work. I mean, so, you know, tackling, you know, you know, maybe truths or, or things that people don't remember. I mean, how do you handle it? And, and you know, where do you start this journey? Yeah, well, I, I, I wanted to work on the books because they didn't exist. And I wanted to have that information in one place. Um, I thought it was an interesting story. Uh, I think like many of us in 2013, Mark Lewison uh, provides us with valuable information that changes how we think about George right. uh, in useful ways. Um, and when you start to understand those aspects of him, uh, his mild duplicities at times, <laughs> Uh, it starts to make sense when you weigh it over the course of his life. Um, so first of all, it was a lack in, in the work we have at the moment. So I wanted to do it for that reason. But the real challenge was sifting through those works you describe, which often have um, either George buying into the Beatles' own showbiz mythology or uh, misremembering things, sometimes having them in the wrong order. There were a couple of moments when I was writing Maximum Volume, which I will send you a copy because you're a good pal. Um, but there were a couple of moments when I thought George had given me some great climactic ends for my chapters, right? Um, and I was following along with, uh, you know, with a little help from my friends. You know, what's it called? All You Need Is Ears. Um, uh, that was the one that where I found the most errors. And uh, I had to real I realized that the timeline didn't work out, so I had to sort of roll it back <laughs> and uh, find a new climax for that chapter, which wasn't hard. It's the Beatles, you know, story right. at a certain point. So um, helping him find his space inside that story to me was very important. And uh, I just by writing it, I learned things I couldn't have imagined about him. Wow. Hmm. Okay. Um, can we jump into the next decade? Uh, there's, there's so much here to, to talk about, but how did George Martin find working on what I call the trilogy of uh, Tug of War, Pipes of Peace, and Give My Regards to Broad Street? And also, do you have any information to explain? Because we've been given different answers through the years about why Wings really ended. And I've heard that George Martin felt that Paul should be working with, you know, superior musicians or people of his caliber. I've heard that kind of an explanation. I don't know if it was just a matter of Paul getting tired of, of the band lineup or the experience of the jug bust in Japan. Is there any information you have about that and what George Martin's influence might have been as, as far as making it a solo McCartney album? Because they did rehearse songs from Tug of War when they were in Wings towards the end. They absolutely did. Um, I, I, you know, I've heard so many different things about this, like you, um, George Martin wasn't alone in, in thinking that perhaps the wings side men were not up to Paul's caliber. Linda McCartney said the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you might remember when, when they went on the tour we referred to earlier in 1990, 
the when she was was it 60 Minutes or one of the uh, the nighttime news magazine shows where Dateline even perhaps before it was all murder all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, she had talked about just how much better she felt that band was uh, than his past band. So um, it. George wasn't alone in thinking that. He had a lot of trouble taking credit for Wings breaking up, though. He argued that, um, and he said this to a number of his confidants and people close to him, that Paul wanted out of Wings, and he sort of laid it at George's feet um, in, in some some sense. Huh. Uh, now, we all know Lawrence Juber from Beatles Fest, and uh, he suggested to me, and it's in his book, too, that they really thought George had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, lot, a lot to do with affecting that transition. Um, and so I tend to go with them as, as witnesses who had a lot to lose and a lot to gain, uh, depending on how that particular, um, that moment uh, turned out after the, yeah. uh, after the drug bust. Yeah, I think you wrote here that Lawrence Schuber, you know, described uh, Paul as using uh, George as the scapegoat for that situation. Yeah, you know. um, but you know uh, what? What has really impacted me more than anything I have in the book that you're holding, Tom, was our <laughs> our own interview with Chris Thomas, um, which I thought was absolutely fascinating last November when yeah. he talked about making back to the egg. Mm -hmm. I mean, that really sounded like a guy who was sort of wanted out of that band, and uh, the the way he began to uh, populate it with these sort of solo pieces. Uh, until they talked him out of it. Uh, that was fascinating stuff. You know, it's interesting. Lawrence has told me before that he felt that the music Paul was writing for Tug of War didn't sound like a band album to him. It sounded more like, I, mean, I don't know how you tell the difference. To some <laughs> people, it's all Paul McCartney music anyway. Some people look at it that way. But in his mind, some of those songs didn't work as well as a band. You know, maybe having studio people in there or people like, uh, you know, a Carl Perkins, Stevie Wonder, Steve Gadd, those people. Um, it was more suitable for that. So but how, how did George Martin, how did he feel about the whole experience making those three albums? Well, you know, when you look at those those three records, he really doesn't have a, a conventional experience with them. Right. I mean, most of it is making tug of war. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's downhill from there. You know, Tug of War was the complete project. That was the one where, you know, when you, when you follow the production schedule, they put by far uh, the most effort into. Whereas Pipes of Peace and Broad Street uh, were very different kinds of experiences. I mean, for the most part, right, uh, Pipes of Peace is a, a few new songs, but a lot of holdovers. Um, he has so much, he has such a stockpile of material uh, going by that point. Um, and then, of course, by the time you get to uh, give my regards to Broad Street, there are retread moments, um, success or failure of, I leave that up to you. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I, you know, before I wrote this book, the book, uh, the second book, I would have agreed with you that it felt like a trilogy to me. Um, with differing results. But now it's really one experience that sort of creates aftershocks uh, until we get to the film. 
um, which you know has all sorts of aesthetic problems in terms of holding it together as a single story. Uh, but there are some beautiful arrangements that we know that George can do and does well. Um, but he always believed, you know, in creating a brand new album. And he approached most of his bands like that. Cheap Trick is a great example. Bring me all your new material. Mm-hmm. And uh, while it didn't necessarily have the commercial expectations of their previous work, I love that record. <laughs> and I think they, they nailed it, you know. Um, yeah. So I don't know that I, – I don't believe uh, – that it was particularly satisfying for him toward the end. But of course, tug of war was for both he and McCartney, a watershed moment. Now, mm-hmm. if we go back to 1973, the success of live and let die really right. helped George launch into a kind of new phase of his post Beatles production career. Um, and I think it's no surprise or, or not ironic at all that it was, you know, it was Paul that helped him get there. Yeah. One uh, one question before I pass you over to Kit. How did George Martin feel about Paul going back and redoing the Beatles songs on Broad Street? Um, I, I had trouble finding a comment on that, to be frank with you. Um, I, I was very interested in that question myself. Um, he certainly was happy with the results, uh, particularly with the orchestration that he was doing when they created the segues. Mm. Uh, very happy with that material and it is beautiful stuff. Um, you know, <laughs> I remember when, when me that age was listening to it. Um, and, and I think I actually thought differently about it at the time, you know, it was new McCartney material as far as I was concerned and I was happy to have it. Um, right. at this juncture, um, I wish that we'd been getting new McCartney material in that songwriting heyday of his, you know, that was, that's the same record with no more lonely nights. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would love to have heard him mine that uh, that terrain or the two uh, more rocking songs on side two of the record, sure. which George liked a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, he even liked that sort of darker version of "So Bad." Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. And, yeah, and yeah. that whole arrangement of Eleanor's dream was brilliant. So that took a lot of work on it's George. Beautiful. Martin. Yeah. Oh, absolutely! It's beautiful yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay, Kit. All right. Well, I guess we we've been dwelling in the '80s right now, so we'll let's let's head to the '90s. So I I was curious, you know, I I remember when the buzz started around anthology, and you know, I I remember reading interviews with George Martin where he just said, you know, I I don't understand why people want to hear these outtakes and these <laughs> other, you know, why do you know why don't you just want to hear the final product? But clearly he came came around. <laughs> I mean, he obviously did at some point. I mean, do you think, you know, what do you think changed his mind other than, you know, obviously it, it was going to be a money-making, you know, project, but but what was it that, that finally brought him around to agreeing to work on this? Well, it's the simple fact that, uh, you know, um, slowly but surely over the decades, he had become um, the keeper of their legacy in a lot of ways. Um, it happened slowly, but it happened pretty quickly, right? I mean, look at how they consulted him on the first Hollywood Bowl release. Um, yeah. I can't believe we have to say that uh, <laughs> uh, way back when. And uh, and then, of course, uh, at first, they sort of quietly approach him about the CD release, and then they really pull him in. 
um, George really began to uh, fill a legacy role with them. And it was one, of course, obviously he cared very, very much about. Um, you can see him really in full throttle in 1993 when they re-released the Red and the Blue albums. And uh, he and George Harrison had a nice moment together on the promotion. Um, so he, it was a very natural project for him to oversee. Um, I, I, I wish George were still alive for a number of reasons, uh, but most certainly so that he could uh, gauge the reaction that people are clearly having to all the outtakes we get now. Yeah. Um, you know, so buckle up, buddy. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a huge marketplace. I mean, I think that they're not even tapping it as much as they could. Uh, if they wanted in terms of creating online archives of this material that you could listen to via subscription. I would subscribe today, EMI, by the way. That's just <laughs> um, And it's a high price. I'd pay a lot yep. uh, every month. I'd pay a car payment. Ooh, I said it. Ooh. Uh, that's not a, not a big fancy SUV car payment, but a nice economy <laughs> car payment. Sure. There you, you go. Know. Yeah, absolutely. In any event, uh, you know, the, the George was happy he had that level of uh, oversight. But, of course, the pain for him came with those, uh, those reworkings of the John Lennon songs uh, and really being included out uh, over those with this kind of cover story that his hearing wasn't up uh, for it anymore. That was, that was kind of sad for him. That was one of the most shocking parts of your book when I read that, because I remember that the whole thing was that his hearing wasn't up to scratch and that he, you know, passed it over to Jeff Lynn. And, and I mean, I couldn't believe he wasn't asked to uh, uh, to be a part of that, those sessions. So, yeah, I mean, well, and I had lived under that uh, that belief for a long time. I've written yeah. it incorrectly in the Beatles encyclopedia, um, <laughs> but uh, you can't help that. But uh no, it's not true. I mean, George, uh, George Harrison, uh, of course, um, as the story now, as we now understand it, was in financial straits, was pushing hard for the project, but wanted a certain level of control, and he wanted his guy, and his guy was Jeff Lynn. Yeah. Yep. Understood. All right. And then let me get, there are people submitting questions here and we may not get to them on the air, but don't worry. We will, uh, we will dress them, uh, you know, keep them coming. We'll, we look at the comments as, as you know. <laughs> so let's take a question from our good buddy, Mean Mr. Mayo. Hey, Joe. Um, and his question is, did John come close to working with George Martin at all? I recall Lennon uh, mentioning George's studio on WNEU and uh, W, excuse me, in 1974. I have no evidence uh, that they came close to working together. Um, you know, George Martin probably would have done it because he truly loved them and <laughs> cared for the Beatles. There's just no doubt about that. Um, uh, but having said that, you know, during that period, they really were not talking. They they make up a bit finally uh, with um, the Hollywood Bowl. There it is again. Uh, <laughs> George was passing through town. He had the new masters, dropped it off at the Dakota where John was back living by that point. And John gave them his OK, although they didn't have a any kind of uh, lengthy conversation at that point. It was later when John apologized for some of his sort of uh, outlandish remarks during in the 1970s. So I don't know if they were quite ready then. Um, if he was going to work at a studio, it would have had to be Oxford Street. 
because Montserrat doesn't open until, uh, you know, for five or six more years. Um, but I bet he would have done it. George, you know, love those guys. I don't think there's much he wouldn't have done for them. Yeah. Mm. Mm. All right, Tom. Yeah. Um, well, let's get to let, uh, live and let die here. Um, I wonder if there's any kind of, you know, misconfusion on Paul's part about this, because you write that he was, you know, contacted to write the theme for Live and Let Die, not necessarily sing Live and Let Die, because as we learned by reading the book, when um, George Martin presents the song to Saltzman, he asks him, well, who are we going to get to sing the song? And I found it interesting that, you know, one of the choices or one of the suggestions was Aretha Franklin, and I can <laughs> totally... I mean, I would give anything to see, you know hear Aretha back then, you know, sing a James Bond song. I thought she would be great, but it just was it a mis, you know, understanding on maybe Paul's part about you know his, uh, you know, uh, about his uh, work on Live and Let Die, and, and it's really George Martin we had to thank for making sure that Paul sings that song, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? That whole scenario, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and I try to go back and think about it, you know, in that period. Uh, while Paul had had a few doldrums, commercially speaking, during the early 1970s, he's still Paul McCartney. Mm, right. um, I mean, we haven't necessarily seen, obviously, Band on the Run and all of the things that are going that are coming. But I found that pretty flabbergasting, uh, the way jo McCartney was being sort of sidestepped um, right. during that moment in the franchise. Uh, it, mm. That was a real eye-opener for me. Um, mm. I would love, I, I, Aretha would have been very interesting. <laughs> uh, so, but having said that, and remember George was fighting pretty hard for the deal because he wanted mm -hmm. another James Bond theme, right? right. That was his, his third. <laughs> mm. Right, um, I mean. Yeah. From yeah, Russia I mean, with Love, Goldfinger, right. and, and now right. that one. Yeah, but what yeah. a strange turn of events that, I, it's hard to imagine a world even now where Paul would. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you, you mentioned that document that he signed in 65 where I just found it fascinating where, yeah. you know, not only is it just the Beatles, but it's them individually. So that means he had to take that smaller that smaller cut of the royalties. Right, you know? he had to abide by the same agreement they had through January 1976. Okay. And uh, they had given him a woefully small percentage, worse in the United States, in fact, wow. uh, which was on purpose. Uh, they made up some reasoning for it, but of course, America, as Paul McCartney says, is the biggest showbiz town ever. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, the comedy, I hope, intentional uh, in that line. But uh, yeah, George was uh, was under a pretty crummy deal, uh, right. and if you remember, that's why when he does the Yellow Submarine soundtrack uh, in 1968, released in early 1969, he was desperate to make sure it happened. Right. Right. You recall they thought for a moment about going with an EP of just the Beatles music, and George said, "Now wait a minute, <laughs> you're not denying me this. This thing's gonna shoot them. I'm ready to get paid, and and he right. was, and he deserved it." Um, <laughs> Anything at all that um, that you learned about the Flaming Pie sessions and the work that George Martin did there, because he did the orchestration on Some Days and also on Beautiful Night. What was it like? Um, that later in his career uh, to be working with Paul? Um, you know, he saw those, I don't want to say his work for hire, but you know, for George Martin by that point, this stuff was rote. 
all you had to do, quite frankly, was send him the demo. <laughs> <laughs> and he would go into his, I mean, by this point, of course, he's living in his fabulous estate, but he would go into his music room and, you know, he could bang something like that out. Um, for him, that period was marked by the fact that Linda was dying and that was right. know, very painful. I mean, if you imagine by that point how long he has known and been close to Linda, um, they were all just devastated by where that was going. Sure. Yeah. You know, so his memories, uh, and I give him great credit for this, by the way, when you look at his memories, they're so often connected less to um, the particular project and more to the people. He really did love the people. Um, you know, that yeah. was to him, the connection was, uh, was the folks. And he, um, you know, <laughs> he was a, a giant of a man in more ways than one, very complex, but he really did have a, a huge heart for, for anybody he worked with, you know, he would uh, he would remember them years later. I, I talked to several folks who worked in recording studios with him at different times in his life, and how they would run into each other um, in you know somewhere in London or or you know the United States, and they would go to dinner and they would just have these really personal times. A mm. couple of them even would tell me all sorts of information about working on the sessions. But then right. I'd say, well, tell me about, you know, what'd you guys do at dinner? And they'd be like, you know, that's, they all said the very similar thing. That was kind of personal. That was their thing. Mm -hmm. uh, John Curlander talking about after 9-11, you know, when they had a moment uh, just thinking about the devastation together. Um, they, they really uh, were very proud of their intimate experiences with him and, and would keep those quiet. Okay. Um, we're almost out of time. I do want to just mention something here because Jeff Emmerich is a name we bring up every now and then. And it just seems like certainly in Paul's solo career, Jeff Emmerich was very involved with engineering many of his albums. And it all, always seems like where there's George Martin, there's Jeff Emmerich. Was there this incredible bond between the two of them? Uh, how do you describe their relationship? They, uh, they were, they did have a great bond. And of course, um, Jeff would execute so many of George's best innovations, right? And Jeff would often make them better, uh, would, would make them, wow, this is not a word, folks, so don't write this down, but he would make them innovativer, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I mean, he would. Uh, Jeff was wonderful in that way. Um, and they were, you know, it's amazing. You're exactly right. They would, they would almost be a two-person deal, right? Mm. But mm. by the dawn of this century, Unfortunately, um, they sort of went their own ways, and uh, George was very troubled by Jeff's book. Um, he said much of it was fiction. Really, um, you know, and and anybody who writes uh, about the Beatles uh, gets some great material out of that book because it's a firsthand experience. But you have to be very careful with it, right? And yeah. uh, weigh uh, weigh the validity of some of the stories and and double check them. Um, uh, because of a faulty memory or a faulty co-writer's memory or, or whatever happened there, I, I couldn't tell you. <clears throat> and sadly, we can't ask Jeff now, but they, they had some tough feelings. Um, mm. And Jeff, uh, while, while helpful uh, for, for both of these books, um, would not comment on some things when he felt that he would be saying something negative about George in retrospect. Okay. Um, so in a way, he honored his memory in that way. But uh, that was a complex relationship. I, and I don't know, and this was something I was gonna ask Jeff about, how they, how they left things. 
Yeah. Um, I, mm. I couldn't tell you. But uh, obviously, you know, they were the brain trust behind some of the greatest recordings in the history of the world. Wow. Well put. He's very, he's very protective of George. Yeah. Yeah. I have one last question, then we'll just go around with everybody else. Did George yeah. ever say what his proudest moment was after the Beatles? Of all the artists. I, I didn't hear that one. Did George Martin ever say what his proudest moment was that he achieved after the Beatles? Even if that includes solo Beatles with Paul McCartney. Did he ever comment on what he was wow. most proud of? Um, you know, if you if you did a sort of um, <laughs> a study of, of his mentions, I think it's probably working with Jeff Beck. I mean, that's a great record. Hmm. He really hits everything. There are no bad notes on that record. Um, his orchestration merging with Beck's guitar work is pretty stunning. Um, and, and he felt uh, really enlarged by that. Um, Tug of War was huge too, uh, but, but the Jeff Beck album, uh, I think would have been up there for him, uh, even though it wasn't necessarily his greatest work. And he certainly uh, leaned understandably um, on Giles, uh, you know, the, as, a, as, a, as a Briton, the, the moment with Princess Diana was, uh, he felt a, a great patriotism about mm -hmm. uh, being part of that. Um, you know, the loss of George Harrison was heartbreaking for him and he felt yeah. very close he, he, I, he was very proud of his work on Love, you know, mm -hmm. on uh, that, that last, his last recording ever, which is While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Um, right. You know, that's just beautiful stuff. And uh, th there are a lot of highlights. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, if I could talk to George, and by the time I was working on this, he really was not able to, to have the kind of conversations I would need. And, and his team was very kind, but, but he was unavailable. Um, I would underscore uh, the biggest thing he's given to pop music that still exists today, and that is his emergence. Uh, he, he blew pop music wide open. He created uh, an unparalleled demographic for popular music. It was not just the music of teeny boppers when George Martin was done with it. You know, he, uh, the Beatles, um, I would never take anything away from their songwriting, which, you know, changed my life like all of yours. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, He's the guy who took it from a, a, a narrow demographic to the whole world, um, you know, to four-year-olds and 94-year-olds. Uh, and that happened in 1965, 66, 67. It is, it is unparalleled what happens in that period uh, when he helps them to enlarge their sound and take it to in arguably every demographic. You know, they go from the teeny boppers to every demographic and, and George doesn't just open that door for them. Look at what happens beyond that, right? Right. You can hear him in, uh, in country and Western, uh, the Eagles, uh, you know, um, I, I could go on, right? I mean, it's, it's absolutely everywhere. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> That's right. Kit, any last questions? Um, just that, uh, you know, I, I thought it was interesting when you mentioned love, because I know that was something that he and Jeff Emmerich disagreed on. You know, you mentioned that at, uh, in, in your book. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if 
Jeff ever ever came around, but it seemed like, you know, that was the as you just mentioned the last sort of you know satisfying project George did. I mean, he seemed, as you said, just seemed so proud of it and 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 you know willing to take his creations and and the productions, I should say, and and turn them into something else and did a did a wonderful wonderful job. Well, to be fair, he gave a lot of that credit to Giles. You know, True. George. George was in the hospital when that project started. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when I discussed it with Giles, he sort of suggested that maybe George's heart was not in that, didn't quite believe you could do it. But then wow. I think like all of us, he discovered very quickly when he heard it, wow, of course you can. The Beatles yep. are that elastic. Um, mm -hmm. Of course you can create new layers of these amazing layers that we already have. and. Uh, and he was in heart and soul by the time he got out of the hospital. So it was a really great moment for them. Um, and you're, I don't think Jeff ever uh, changed his mind about love. The last time I talked to him, uh, he brought it up. <laughs> and, uh, and and it, in the book, I think I have it in all its ferociousness. I think, uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, Jeff really felt like you don't, that, that music's sacrosanct, mm -hmm. right? You don't touch it. Um, to me, uh, and I'm of a generation, a different generation like you. Um, I hear it and I think, it, no, it, it's not sacrosanct. It's so good that you can rend it into different kinds of experience, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so fabulous. Now, ultimately, this happens to me every time. I'm running back to the original at some point just because it, you know, it did have a pristine quality to it. But you know, those pieces on love are just amazing. Um, and, and they make your heart sing. Uh, but that doesn't mean you don't love the original. <laughs> there true. is a talent. There is a talent that comes with blending two or three songs together, hearing them in your head, how they could work. You know, oh, yeah. That is, that is the drama. Too. Yeah. Right. And the drama, right? Um, the drama in, in works like um, my favorite one is the Mr. Kite where it's merged with, what is it, Helter Skelter and uh, mm, something else. Uh, yeah, but it's just beautiful. The horses slowed down and neighing. You know, mm, it right. is just, it is dark. And, and, you know, Giles finds different textures and moods inside those songs. I love that. Right. You know, I mean, just his presentation of uh, Because, right? You strip away... Oh. Um, uh, actually, his father <laughs> playing the keyboards. Uh -huh. He stripped that away, and it's almost a different song. It's no less beautiful. It's just beautiful in a different way. Mm, true. Absolutely. Okay. Tom, how about you? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Sergeant Pepper for a second, but not the good one, the bad one. Um, <laughs> oh, ouch. Now, now. Yeah, you were asking yeah, about know, that earlier, too. Listen, yeah. Yeah. Listen, you know, I've never really paid much attention to it. There is some good stuff in there, but I was I was kind of shocked on how personal he took the job. You know, where he's saying that I couldn't I couldn't bear to see anybody else you know take on that project, and then also him saying that you know he shouldn't have done it. So I mean, I was kind of surprised. You know, his feelings and where he almost blamed himself for 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 the poor success of the the soundtrack. I mean, it doesn't sound like that was something that he was really wanted to do in the first place but you also wrote that he you know he got a nice fee for it so why not but, uh, do it? <laughs> yeah he absolutely wanted to do it and it was maybe arguably the biggest payday of his career i mean it was okay. enormous money 
um, mm. that came his way, courtesy of you know the Stigwood organization, right. it was absolutely massive dollars. Um, mm. And he put a lot. He and of course by his side was Jeff Emmerich. Right. Jeff Emmerich. And uh, they spent. You know, they moved to L.A. <laughs> Uh, to work on that project. Um, I was fortunate to be able to talk to some of the folks who were um, uh, part of the engineering team. And uh, <laughs> and I think I included this scene in the book. It was so long, they cut some of it. So I apologize. Mm. If, if you think things are missing, it's not because I didn't know. <laughs> uh, and, it, and by the way, it's, it's coming out in paperback this fall, and they wouldn't let me enlarge it. Oh, uh, it oh. In any event, that's a, another fight for another time. But right. um, you know, but going back to to that Sergeant Pepper experience, there's that great scene where he and Jeff would listen to it without the vocals uh, mm. because they really loved what they'd pulled together with the instrumentation and the orchestration. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, the vocals added to it in many cases. But then the screenplay was just, uh, yeah. you know, I, 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 I would, I, I would caution George, again, mm -hmm. if I'm dead, um, <laughs> that there's nothing he can do to resuscitate that screenplay. It's a jukebox musical, but so is the movie we just talked about, right? right. And there's a big difference in terms of the quality of story. Yes, uh, mm -hmm. that story did not work uh, for audiences, you know, mm -hmm. back then. It, right. it was highly problematic. Um, and you can compare it to what across the universe, where right. maybe something more plausible, I would argue, occurred uh, in terms of creating a jukebox, jukebox musical out of out of the Beatles' music. So I don't know if there's anything he could have done about that. Right. Um, yeah. But he certainly beats himself up for it. But of course, it was painful if you were watching Billboard magazine in those years. And uh, you know the thing came out with a flourish, and then mm -hmm. and we all remember this. This is going to date us. But remember the cutouts in the corner of the record, right? And all those records. What was the what was the line about it? It was the first album to be ever returned double returned, platinum. Yeah, double platinum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, you know that was hurtful. Yeah, they shipped like four million copies, I think, like that. Yeah, and uh, and of course, Robin was it Robin Gibb who was out yeah, there yeah. saying that. You're going to yeah. forget the original songs after you hear this. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, don't mind, I don't mind his vocals on Old Darling. I think that's one of the, you know, better aspects of that of the album. But yeah, one more point. quick little, little question, and you don't have to go on too much specifics, um, but Solid State coming up, your, your newest book coming up later this year, did you learn anything more about George that you didn't find out about him during this uh, part two of, uh, of, George, of the bio? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've got a few uh, tidbits in there for you. Okay. Yeah, I got them uh, uh, from subsequent conversations with uh, several of the parties we've discussed tonight where I, I learned right. a bit more about his perspective. Hmm. Um, okay. You know, I'm sensing this floating in and out show. of that. <laughs> I think it Could is. Be, although Abbey Road, Abbey Road's not a solo record, as far as That's I know. That's true. <laughs> it's our darn show. We can do what we want. <laughs> we could bend the rules a little bit. We can bend the rules. Okay. Well, this has been great, and just like so many yep. topics that we tackle here, we could do several shows on this because mm -hmm. uh, the contributions of George Martin, as Ken so eloquently put it, are just so enormous. And there's a lot we didn't even talk about still with the solo music. So maybe we'll revisit this in a future show.
Right. And Still yes, it wonder. wouldn't be complete without uh, without Ken's cat. So there you go. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> For those of your fans out there, I know we wouldn't leave you hanging without seeing at least one of the cats. <laughs> so very quickly, let's give our folks some contact information about us and what we're all doing in our latest projects. Kit, how about you first? Uh, well, Deep Beetles is finally coming back this week. I, I had to take a, an unplanned hiatus uh, last month, but it is back. It'll be up this week at Something Else Reviews. Um, I was on an episode of a podcast that were, was a friend of our show uh, when they was fab. Um, mm -hmm. I was on a two-parter there. Uh, that, so uh, there was that. And then uh, the first part of a two-part interview I did for another uh, great podcast, Glass Onion, uh, is also up. Those links are all on my Facebook page, and uh, you can find that. You can also go to kiddotool.com or follow me on Twitter at kiddotool, and I will give you all the links to, uh, to these various uh, projects. Okay. Ken Womack, how about you? Oh, I try to stay busy, Ken. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I between petting cats and... That's, that's a very important job. And feeding cats. Uh, <laughs> you can read all about my work at uh, kennethwomack.com. Uh, you know, uh, just gearing up for the story of Solid State and the end of the Beatles at the end of this year. Um, we, uh, I was very fortunate to get a... Uh, a very nice review in Publishers Weekly. Yeah. Congratulations. Yes. It's, uh, a great start for the book, and I'm gearing up uh, to do some, uh, hopefully some talks uh, this fall uh, in, in big cities like New York. I'm waiting, of course, for Kit to invite me to Chicago. She never does. Um, <laughs> You're coming so <laughs> Yeah, but I mean in the fall. Uh, when, you know, there's a, when, there, when there's a nip in the air, you know, when you and I are down on that Navy Pier, just uh, soaking in all that, that good Chicago fun. You know the place, Kit. I know. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Okay, Tom, how about you? What's going on yeah. with you? Well, you know, you can find me, just myself, Tom Hunyadi, on Facebook. You can also uh, check out my other show, Two Legs. Um, just uh, on the Facebook page, we just uh, posted our season finale. That's uh, our third season finale, actually, where we had a special guest, uh, Mitchell Axelrod, joined us. And we very politely discussed <laughs> some of Paul's missteps throughout his solo career. <laughs> so, you know, we weren't, uh, we weren't too negative. We were pretty positive, give some constructive criticism on some of the stuff we thought maybe he shouldn't have done, you know, so we had a good time with that. Uh, you can go to podbean.com and check that out. You can email me at uh, twolegspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in uh, September or October for season four. Wow. Right. Very right. good. You're a busy man right there. Yeah. <laughs> and as for me, my email address is everylittlething at att.net. I also have a Facebook page under Ken Michaels. You can visit my website, kenmichaelsradio.com, for lots of Beatle interviews, including with Kit and with Ken. They're on the website. Uh, Beatles trivia page every single week where you can win one of nine great prizes. And uh, also I did a recent interview with Terry Crane. Terry is the author of this book right here, NEMS and the Business of Selling Beatles Merchandise in the United States. 
1964 to 1966. It's all about all the items that were sold here. It's not a price guide, but it's all the background information, who the manufacturer was, photos of all the items, really detailed book. And as a matter of fact, Terry was a guest. We, re we recorded it today for Things We Said Today, which is our next show, which will be out uh, probably this Thursday on podbean.com, also on YouTube. And uh, also, I should say that if you ever want to hear my syndicated Beatles show called Every Little Thing, there is one website out of Germany. <laughs> I wonder why. Um, where you can hear archived shows of Every Little Thing. You can just stream them whenever you want. And that's at GlobalTexanChronicles.com. It's a long name, but it's worth investigating. GlobalTexanChronicles.com. I think that about does it for us. Ken, this has been wonderful. And we're, we're gonna we gotta have more conversation about George Martin. And right. don't forget the book, Sound Pictures, and the and previous yep. book, yep. Maximum Volume on George Martin. And yep. uh, this has been wonderful. So cool. thanks, team. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. <laughs> yep. Thank you. So for Tom and Ken and Kit, I'm Ken Michaels, thanking all of you for joining us. And we will see you next time. Talk, more talk. Shot, more talk. <laughs>